Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, report on the heavy fighting that continues across the front lines, and analyse the Ukrainian strike on an oil tanker. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 7th of August, one year and 164 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dom Nichols, foreign correspondent, James Kilner, and assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So a busy weekend, characterised, I think, in the comments this morning by Hannah Malia, Ukraine's deputy defence minister, who said that Russia, just last week alone, expended half a million rounds of ammunition in the east, artillery ammunition, I think she's referring to there. She said 9,000 attacks, 9,000 separate assaults were put in. Uh, this is just in the east around the Bakhmut area. Major General Badanov, who's the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, said that despite that, Kiev has advanced faster around uh, Bakhmut in the east than they have in the lines to the south. Elsewhere, also that's a sort of wider context. But then following on from kind of Friday's, the maritime drone attacks that we saw last week, which I know James is going to talk about, the one on the oil tanker that happened after we uh, after our episode on Friday. But in response to that, seemingly the only response to that that Russia has is from the air. So um, there were a wave of missile and drone drone strikes across Ukraine over the weekend. President Zelensky said that in the early hours of Saturday, Russian forces destroyed a blood transfusion centre in the Kharkiv region. So they used a, used a guided air bomb. We think they're using a dumb bombs, so the old-fashioned bombs, but with they've tried to bolt on or try to innovate. If we're going to be if we say innovation for Ukraine, I suppose you can say it for Russia as well. But they're trying to innovate by putting glide wings or glide foils on these things to give them some semblance of accuracy, but they are not. 
But so in Kupiansk, so we're now about 80 kilometers east of Kharkiv. We're 30 k south of the Russian border. This blood transfusion center was hit and destroyed. President Zelensky called it a war crime, said there were uh, dead and wounded. That attack came just hours after the uh, Ukraine strike on the Russian oil tanker in the Kerch Strait. Uh, James wrote about that. And as I say, he's going to talk about it more broadly in a moment. Then later on Saturday night, there was um, there an attack using 70 70 weapons, including crews and hypersonic missiles. The Iranian-made 131 and 136 Shahid drones. This is according uh, comes from Kiev's Air Force. They said that their air defence destroyed 30 out of 40 cruise missiles and all 27 of the Shahid drones. Now there was no mention of where the other 10 cruise missiles were supposed to have gone. Those that were not shot down, but there were no immediate reports of casualties or damage. So we don't know what happened. There, They weren't all shot down, but maybe they're not working properly or weren't programmed correctly. But for whatever reason, they didn't seem to do any damage. Air Force spokesperson Yuri Inyat, he said that one of the key targets um, on Saturday's attack was the uh, Kamelnitsky region. So this is where they're about 200 kilometres southwest of Kiev. There's a military airfield there and also one a little bit to the northwest in Dubno in the Rivne region. So this is about, as I say, just it's 100 kilometres to the northwest of the other military airfield. And uh, and this one, the Dubno military airfield, is about 300 k's west of Kiev. But uh, Yurinat said not the first time Russia has has, uh, tried to attack those bases. They never successfully managed to put the Ukrainian Air Force out of action uh, and have have continued piecemeal, really, over the last year and a half to strike the Ukrainian military air bases, but never in a concerted effort. The Russian Air Force is is not going forward of its own lines at the moment. A lot of the big Tupolev bombers are launching their... Kinzhal cruise missiles over Russian territory. A lot of the other air activity is taking place over Ukrainian territory that's currently held by Russia. But the Russian Air Force is not going forward of their own lines because they're just not confident of the air defence umbrella. And consequently, um, they've just not put in a concerted effort, effort to wipe out the Ukrainian Air Force. So Yuri Inyat said that we, uh, quote, we have dozens of operational airfields throughout the country. Therefore, it won't be so easy for the enemy to destroy our aviation. Now, elsewhere on Saturday, the Russian Defence Ministry said it had liberated, their word, liberated the settlement of Novoselivska. This is in the northeast of the country, about 100 k southeast of Kharkiv. And so this is in Luhansk Oblast. It's very close to the border with Kharkiv Oblast, but still just inside on the Luhansk side of the border there. Now, you'll remember Luhansk Oblast is one of the four, along with Donetsk, Zaporizhia and Herzon, that Russia said it had annexed last year after a completely transparent, free and fair referendum. So it's going to be interesting to see how Russia spins the idea that it is now taking territory it previously said it owned. Footage from the, um, the Russian army showed Novoselivska completely destroyed along the lines of Bakhmut. So they call it liberated, you call it destroyed. There has generally, back at, I mentioned the context at the start, but there's generally been a an intensification of Russian fighting in that area around Kupiansk and Liman in the northeast. That were t- those towns, Kupiansk and Liman, retaken by Ukraine last year. But generally, on that sector, there's been a, an intensification of Russian effort. This is thought to be an attempt to relieve pressure from the southern flank, where the bulk of Ukraine's offensive is directed. That idea was expressed again on Friday by Hanamalia. And she said the number of enemy attacks has increased. Heavy fighting is taking taking place. Elsewhere, today's British Defence Intelligence report, just worth noting, as we were talking about the Russian Air Force, 
UK Defence Intelligence said the Russian Air Force continues to consistently deploy considerable resources in support of land operations in Ukraine, but without decisive operational effect. Over the summer, uh, so this is according to British MOD, over the summer, Russian tactical combat aircraft have typically carried out over 100 sorties a day, but these were almost always restricted to operating over Russian-controlled territory due to the threat from Ukrainian air defences. I think I've just said that. Russia has attempted to overcome this issue by increasingly using basic freefall bombs with range-extending glide attachments. I think those are the ones that President Zelensky was referring to when he said a guided air bomb. Now, uh, they've not shown consistent accuracy, British Defence Intelligence are saying, and then they finish off by saying, at the start of Ukraine's southern counteroffensive from June 23, Russian attack helicopters proved effective. However, in recent weeks, Russia appears to have been less able to generate effective tactical air power in the south. And really, you are up against it if you are attempting to do anything on the land, if you haven't got that umbrella of air above you. So that's one of the reasons why Russia and Ukraine find it incredibly difficult to shift the lines at the moment. Finally, this morning, Russia has claimed to have shot down a Ukrainian drone. They said they shot this thing down 125 miles southwest of Moscow. This is in the Kaluga region. Uh, the regional governor said uh, no casualties and no infrastructure damage. But continuing that steady drumbeat of air-launched and, as we saw at the end of last week, maritime-launched drones, the, the UK military they don't want to call them killer drones obviously it's a bit flamboyant they don't want to call them kamikaze drones for reasons they're calling them one-way attack uninhabited air vehicles or uninhabited maritime vehicles i imagine but continuing that steady drumbeat which will suck up russian resource and nibble away at this veneer of impenetrability by putin and by the russian state more broadly and i'll take a pause there thank you very much for that dom james Kilner, you've been on the Moscow desk at The Telegraph over the weekend. There's a couple of stories we'd like to go into a little bit more detail with you. Would you like to talk about this attack on the key bridges linking Crimea with occupied Ukraine? What was happening there? Yes, th this came out late yesterday afternoon. Russian officials in occupied Kherson and Crimea region claimed rather that uh, Ukraine had hit a couple of bridges right on the border between the two, two regions with British storm shadow missiles. These are the long-range missiles that Britain gave Ukraine, uh, I think, in May. Um, this was a few hours later confirmed by uh, Ukrainian officials who, who said that they had struck these bridges, although they didn't confirm that they, they were shot uh, that they were hit with storm shadow missiles. Photographs showed uh, sort of fairly light damage to one of the bridges called the Chongar Bridge. Now, the Chongar Bridge is really important because it carries the main roads between. Russia and Crimea through the occupied territories, several hundred miles long, but nonetheless very important because it, it, it gives Russia the only other direct access to Crimea other than over the Kirsch Bridge, which links Crimea with the mainland Russia across the uh, Kirsch Strait. And also this is, very, this is important because uh, the front line in uh, Zaporizhia is only around 80 miles north of, of, of this of this bridge area. Um, so the Russian army had been using uh, supply depots in Crimea and using this road to send kit to its front lines fighting the Ukrainian Zaporizhia and the Kherson region. So taking out this bridge means that they have to detour on the only other road from Crimea to Kherson, which is about 50 miles 45 miles to the west. 
So by taking out this bridge, the Ukrainian military are disrupting Russian supply lines, etc. They attacked the same bridge only six weeks earlier. So if they start doing this with regularity, they really are putting great strain on Russia's ability to send kit to the front line. Obviously, they can send supplies from Russia through occupied Donbass, etc. But it's a much longer route. So this is all part of the Ukrainian strategy to try and undermine Russia's ability to defend. We saw what was really a, a sort of a change of tactics a few weeks ago when the Ukrainian counteroffensive, this major counteroffensive that we reported, reported on so heavily, came on slightly out of stock and stalled it and make as much progress as they thought they would, etc. They changed to blowing up supply lines like the Chongar Bridge, ammo, ammo depots in Crimea, um, hotels and other command centres that Russian generals were using, etc. And listeners and the podcast and, and reason so off will remember that only about three weeks ago, there was a naval drone attack on the Kursk Bridge. So Crimea itself is a peninsula is becoming more isolated. After the attack on the Kursk Bridge three weeks ago, there was an exodus of the holiday Russian holiday makers from Crimea, and they all drove north over the Chongar Bridge and back to Russia the long way around, if you like, through the occupied territories. Now that route is, uh, is gone. They'd have to drive this much, this huge detour west, closer, to, closer into the battlefield area to get back to uh, Russia that way. Thank you very much, James. Would you like to just talk to us as, as well about this attack on a civilian tanker with a naval drone? We saw quite a few attacks last week launched by Ukraine with these naval drones. This story came in, I believe, late on Friday. What happened? So this was just before midnight on Friday, about 20 to midnight. So it became the story on Saturday. And it's all part of the tactics that I've just touched on and filmed it earlier about how Ukraine is trying to undermine the Kremlin's sort of veneer of control and, trend, and trying to bring the war home to to ordinary Russians and ties in with their increased drone attacks on, on, on Moscow itself and on oil installations and other industrial enterprises around Russia, which has been going on for, for a while now with, with drones. Now, this, is, this was a departure because this was the first, uh, I think, attack on a so-called civilian ship in the Black Sea since the war started. There was some grainy black and white footage, showed the drone, naval drone scouting for its target, finding its target and then smashing to the side of it. Later pictures showed the cabin area, the ceilings had, had fallen in, uh, the desk could be scattered, papers everywhere, etc. Uh, there's water in one of the engine rooms, uh, this sort of thing. The Russian media, Russian news agency said that Russia deployed two tugboats to tow this tanker in, the tanker's called the SIG, tow the tanker into port because it had lost power, and this was saying there were no injuries, 11 crew, no injuries. Now, the tanker itself is a really important target. It was flying on the Russian flag. We know that it had previously been sanctioned by the US in 2019 because it is one of the tankers that uh, Russia's been using to supply jet fuel to its air force in Syria. So it would pick up its cargo now, one of the Russia's ports in the Sea of Azov, sail out through the Kursk Strait, uh, across the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus, uh, past Istanbul, into the Mediterranean, and then dock it in Syria. Ukraine 
claimed it, but didn't add much context around. The analysts were saying this is a fair military target because it was, once again, carrying jet fuel to the Russian air force. Now, importantly, uh, Ukraine had slipped out a warning about eight or nine hours before the attack from one one of his maritime agencies saying that it was extending so-called war risk zone all along Russia's Black Sea coast, an area of 300, about 300 miles. And then you have this attack on this tanker. Now, this could be the start of a serious operation to strangle Russian trade into these ports. If Ukrainian drones are able to strike Russian tankers or cargo ships uh, along the Black Sea and in the Strait in the Kerch Straits, they may be able to close off uh, important oil export routes for Russia. And we know that oil is the major cash earner for the Kremlin. It's fueling, it literally fueling their war in, in Ukraine. The attack on the SIG, which happened in the Kerch, n- near the Kerch Bridge, n- n- near the Kerch Straits, uh, came about 24 hours after another naval drone had attacked a Russian naval transport ship in the port of Novorossis, about 200 miles along this Black Sea coast, which really shows the competency and the technological uh, advancements that Ukraine's made in its naval drones over the last year or so. Novorossis, as listeners will remember, is port that Russia had... Um, moved a large part of its Black Sea fleet to from Sevastopol and Crimea because it, it thought there's, the, their base in Sevastopol and Crimea was too much of a target to for Ukrainians for Ukrainian drones, and they considered Norwood Assist to be a safe base. This has now been proved to be incorrect. Um, there is seemingly no safe harbor now for Russia Russian warships in the Black Sea and possibly for, for Russian tankers. That's the message which has been given out. And it's a remarkable juncture, I think. I think this is a, it's a sort of turning, uh, sort of one of these shifts in the wall that is of, of serious note. Thank you very much, Dom and James. Francis, welcome back. You've been out for quite a few days, actually. Using your perspective to stand back and you know, take a look at the news, maybe zooming out a little bit, what do you make of it? Well, thanks, David. It is good to be back after a week or so. I think it's been a while since I've shared a studio with uh, Mr. Onions himself, Dom Nichols. I've said before that in politics, the more one knows, the less one knows, in the sense that uh, one loses the ability to see the bigger picture. And I know from experience this is a common affliction among politicians who, in their immersion in the day-to-day, lose the ability to see what gets cut through and what matters above the fray. Now, we've done our best on this podcast to escape that problem. We've zoomed both in and out. But nonetheless, having a few days off, thinking more broadly, has been helpful, if only to shine a light on the evolving Ukrainian strategy. And also in order to see what those not following the war day to day see and say about this conflict. It's clear that the Ukrainians have spent the last few weeks attacking Russian artillery and logistics while continuing their probing attacks. But the anxiety in Western capitals at the pace of progress has also, I think, led to a shift towards optically impressive attacks, such as the bridge strikes that James was just speaking about. 
as well as the sinking of these Russian ships, which immediately gain headlines and show that Kyiv is still capable of embarrassing Russia's military. The attacks on shipping in the Black Sea that James was just speaking about in detail are also very interesting, particularly on the tanker for the reasons he was just articulating. By one estimate, 30% of Russian oil exports leave from those ports. And significantly, there is an insufficient pipeline infrastructure to transport all of the oil China is buying. So ships are still being used. Russia may be trying to starve the world via its grain terrorism. But Ukraine appears to be attempting to cut off all the oil exports that it can that are still sustaining the Russian war machine. So I echo James in saying this is a really significant moment. It doesn't really feel like it's being fully appreciated in the commentary. But turning to politics, the big story today is the summit in Jeddah on peace talks. They ended last night without any concrete steps on a way forward, though there was a suggestion that the talks would continue later. The chief of staff, the Ukrainian president, said that the talks were fruitful. We had very productive consultations on the key principles on which a just and lasting peace should be built, Zelensky's chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, said. The idea, of course, was to rally more than 40 countries behind the principles that Kyiv wants to be the basis for a peace settlement, the thrust of which, of course, is the removal of all Russian troops and the return of all Ukrainian land. We've talked in the past about the Ukrainian pivot to the Middle East and Africa. There is evidence that Saudi Arabia is particularly keen to assist them, though as the core Western ally in the Middle East, aside from Israel, they may be partly brokered through those relationships as opposed to an ideological commitment, say, to support Ukraine. It's also about putting pressure for them on more hostile actors in the region. Uh, what's the phrase? Shared danger is the strongest of bonds. It will keep men united in spite of mutual dislike and suspicion. Famous quote from the ancient historian Livy. Russia described the efforts which China attended despite shunning previous talks as doomed. Very strong words from them. China's foreign ministry has released a statement saying that the talks in Saudi Arabia helped to consolidate international consensus around the proposals for a peace settlement. Their attendance, I think, is very interesting. Despite their not agreeing with the fundamental principles of victory as espoused by the Ukrainians, people will remember their 12-point uh, peace plan, for instance, they know the importance of them being seen to attend these talks. They can hardly claim to be the key mediators between Ukraine and Russia if they don't. Now, as I've just alluded to, all of this comes off the back of an increasingly fraught situation in the Black Sea, something which, due to the international implications, intensifies the diplomatic sphere. Wheat prices have climbed higher after Ukraine used drones to cripple that oil tanker and naval vessel and threatened the key export route for Russian commodities. This matters for its energy markets, but also matters for food, as I was saying. Russia moves most of its grain through the waterway and is in the midst of a second bumper harvest, making this a really crucial time for getting crops to markets and ensuring enough supply to constrain global food costs. Interestingly, the chief executive officer of broker and advisor Icon Commodities has said, and I quote, the risk in the Black Sea is increasing by the day and any threat to Russian exports is much more potent than a threat to the Ukrainian 
export corridor. So I think that just speaks to the importance of this. Wheat futures in Chicago, which is the global benchmark, climbed as much as 3.4% to $6.5 a bushel. Prices closed 1% higher on Friday, pairing most of a 4.3% intraday gain after the Ukrainian attack on the naval vessel. Traffic at the port where the attack took place was halted for several hours. So these are very important developments that the international community is following very closely. The final story politically I wanted to draw attention to is from Germany in the form of an investigative piece by Der Spiegel and The Insider. They claim to have revealed that a parliamentary aid for the right-wing alternative for Germany, that's the AFD party, worked on a clandestine plan to use Russian money to delay the delivery of tanks to Ukraine. So Vladimir Sergeyenko, a naturalised German citizen who was born in Ukraine, travelled to Moscow on at least two occasions to allegedly meet a handler and discuss plans to use legal tricks to delay German military support to Ukraine. That's coming from Der Spiegel, as I say, citing leaked emails and text messages between the pair. This individual, who's 52-year-old, works as a translator, as I say, for an AFD MP and has access to Germany's parliament, the Bundestag, and is said to have excellent connections inside the Moscow political elite as well. While it is unclear who exactly he was meeting in Moscow, Western intelligence agencies are said to suspect that his contact is a handler for Russia's foreign spy agency, the FSB. Email and phone correspondence seen by the German magazine reportedly showed Mr. Suryenko apparently working on a plan to help the AFD draft a legal complaint against Olaf Scholz's policy of supporting Kiev with heavy weaponry. Uh, They quote from him in this piece of correspondence, the government's job will be made much more difficult. It's a win-win situation. And then he says that he needs uh, financial assistance of up to $25,000 a month to help with legal fees. Uh, Following up from one meeting, the contact in Moscow asked whether there had been progress on active measures, to which uh, Mr. Sergeyenko replied, it's not easy, but yes, we are making progress. This, of course, comes off the context of, in July, the AFD launching a challenge to weapons deliveries in Germany's constitutional court, which is the highest legal institution. That challenge is yet to be heard, but it's not seen as likely that it will force any change in German policy. It's more symbolic. However, it remains unclear whether this individual was actively involved in preparing that legal challenge or whether the money he requested from Moscow landed in his hands or in the party's hands more broadly. I should say that the AFD have denied that it knows of any efforts to drum up financial support from Moscow. But German border police have twice found him carrying €9,000 at the border in recent months, just below the legal limit of €10,000. No action was taken, as he said the money was for relatives living in Russia who are cut off from the global financial system. Uh, Mr. Sergeyenko, he's speaking to the insider, said that uh, this story was blooming fantasy, uh, which I imagine is a translation from a slightly stronger phrase in German. I mention this story because it speaks to a broader anxiety within Germany and Europe more widely that certain fringe parties are not only sympathetic to Russia, but may actually be compromised. Of course, certain left-wing political parties still maintain a certain sympathy for the anti-Western angle Russia 
advocates for and harbour a nostalgia for the Soviet Union. I remember reading a telling piece a few years ago from a prominent left-wing intellectual here in Britain who said that whilst he couldn't condone the worst elements of the Soviet system, its existence showed that an alternative system of governance was possible. And for that reason, he was sad to see it collapse. I personally find this an absolutely shocking admission that the suffering of millions should be permitted as a kind of intellectual experiment. But it isn't an uncommon one, as I say. And among the far right, you see this admiration for Putin's strongman, anti-progressive stance, as well as scepticism towards interventionism uh, in foreign countries. Moscow has exploited these propensities in its narrative and its strategy. Broadly speaking, they do not have popular support in Europe, but evidently they are trying to plant seeds as the political landscape of Europe changes in the coming months and years as the inevitable consequence of shifting political tides that are, of course, part and parcel of democratic politics. But yeah, a lot going on, David, and I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much, Francis. James, um, can I come back to you? I'm sure people following the war over the past week will have seen uh, this rather moving footage coming out of Kiev, which is Ukraine replacing the Soviet hammer and sickle emblem on the absolutely enormous motherland monument, which sort of towers over the city. I've seen it. You can see it when you're coming over the bridge going west towards the centre. Could you talk to us a little bit about this story? Why do the Ukrainians do this and what kind of reaction has it provoked in Ukraine and Russia? This is one of the most prominent examples of a derustification process that has been going on in Ukraine since uh, the 2014 revolution kicked out uh, Yanukovych, uh, Kremlin's Stukas president of, of Ukraine. Since then, Ukrainian government has been trying to replace street names and literature and Russian heroes with Ukrainian heroes, etc. This obviously really sped up after the invasion of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year by the Kremlin. And uh, this is the sort of biggest expression of this process. As you just mentioned, the Motherland Monument towers over Kiev. It's a, it's just over 100 metres tall, which is taller than uh, Big Ben. That, that includes the, the base. It's made out of Ukrainian Zaporizhian steel. It was erected in 1981 under Brezhnev as a monument to the Soviet victory in the Great Patriotic War, as you know we would call World War II, the defeat of Nazi Germany. The statue is of a woman holding a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. And on the shield, there was a Soviet hammer and sickle logo. This has now been replaced by the Trident, which is a Ukrainian uh, independence logo. It was adopted in 1992, a year off the fall of the Soviet Union. And it dates back to Vladimir the Great, 11th century ruler of Kiev city-states. Now, the, the reaction online, um, I, I haven't been in Kiev, so I, I can't speak to anyone directly, but the reaction online was fairly euphoric, actually. The uh, Ukrainians were extremely pleased to see the map of, of this symbol, which, which for them represented imperial Soviet and and Russian overbearance, if you like. Now, we have to keep remembering that the Kremlin has been very keen to invoke the Soviet Union and to invoke the Soviet Union's victory in what it calls the Great Patriotic War uh, in its propaganda to drum up support for its invasion of Ukraine. 
not only it doesn't make a, a big deal about the main night parade, uh, which is the, the main military praise and the sort of civilian praise to go along with it to mark this war. But it was also handing out so-called victory banners to his troops uh, last year when they were capturing villages and towns in Ukraine. They were planting the sort of mock Soviet red banners uh, with a hammer and sickle on it to mark the capture of each town in, in, in Ukraine. So it was really important to get rid of this... Uh, hammer and sickle from this huge uh, memorial monument thing in Kiev. And I, and I think it will be a great relief when, when it's officially unveiled on August 24th, which is Ukrainians, Ukraine's Independence Day, and it's renamed from a motherland statue to Mother Ukraine. Thanks, James. Staying with you for one more story, you've been writing about uh, some criticism of the West in regards to policies surrounding Kosovo. So let's zoom out of Ukraine and talk about Kosovo. What have you been finding? This was a letter that was given to the uh, Daily Telegraph yesterday. It was written, it was uh, signed by 52 politicians, mainly, mainly European politicians, some British MPs and members of the House of Lords uh, were writing to the British Foreign Secretary, uh, the Secretary of State and to the EU to basically complain that they thought the uh, EU and US were being too soft on Serbs uh, and weren't sport enough of Kosovo since uh, disputed elections in April to violence in May. Between the, the politicians were complaining that unless they took a stronger line against Serbs, this was just going to continue, it was going to, to, to breed more disconsent in the Balkans, etc., etc. Bringing it back to the topic of this podcast, Russia and Ukraine, part of the reason there is more disagreement in this European hotspot is because of, of the very existence of this war in Ukraine. Uh, Serbia has been a traditional Russia ally. It has come out and criticised uh, the Kremlin for its war in Ukraine, but it doesn't take part in Western sanctions. It has not called Putin uh, a war criminal, as he's been turned by the International Criminal Court in The Hague, etc. And th- there is very strong evidence that the Kremlin is trying to exploit this sort of hotspot in Europe for its own ends. We know that the Kremlin set up more of its propaganda TV units in Belgrade at the end of last year and has been pumping out its worldview, etc. There is evidence of Serbian nationalists sending arms to its supporters in northern Kosovo, possibly Russian help. Serbia and Kosovo both are on sort of joining the EU trajectory, or they said they want to join it. So it, it is very important to keep an eye on this. Thank you very much. James Kilner. All right, well, let's go to our final thoughts. Francis Sternley, as our returning host, would you like to start? Thanks, David. I've got a lot of final thoughts planned from some of the reading I was doing whilst I was away on subjects around, of course, the kidnapping of Ukrainian children and also some interesting historical parallels. But I actually want to read from an email today from a Russian listener that came in about a week or two ago. And it provides some interesting insights. And I should stress that in quoting from it, I have removed any identifying features. So here we go. I've been meaning to email you for some time. I'm a Russian living in Canada. I have family in southern Russia. When Russia invaded in 2022, one of my wife's friends went to fight. He was a medic and died in Bakhmut in some kind of artillery strike. The family got his body back. A friend of mine was in special operations Russia and recently retired, for what I understand. I have not spoken to him. 
I listen to the podcast every day and watch the footage coming out of Ukraine every day. I feel remorse for the actions of my people and angry at the lack of remorse to the leadership's bloodthirst. We have no excuse now that we live in the age of information. My parents have contacts in the old country. They say that with the sanctions, the oil they need for their turbines, for instance, which is a Canadian product, went from $10 a pail to $300 because they need to send it through several other countries. They do not operate those engines anymore. Much manufacturing has ceased. They simply don't make any more Russian products. The service technicians behave like ogres. Sensors with fine thread pitch are smashed into place with a hammer instead of being screwed in and talked properly. Russian cables will notwithstand being run over with a tractor once they are buried and crack in the cold. American ones are now unavailable. The remains of the empire will be plundered and not much will be left and the people will be lost. I always say my father emigrating was the best thing that ever happened to me. When I went back, I had one friend alive and not in jail, and he wanted me to go and rob a house with him. Here, in Canada, I have a high-paying unionised job, a nice apartment. Apartments in Russia are all Soviet, nothing has been built or repaired outside of Moscow. A lovely wife and a great life. I also wanted to relay a beautiful moment I had with the Ukrainian here. He knows I'm Russian, and I went to his office because I needed help with something he does as his trade. I walked in and said, Slavoli Ukraine. He said... Slavly Ukraine, my friend. Then, instead of speaking in English, he helped me solve my problem entirely in perfect Russian. I almost cried. Anyway, thanks for all of your hard work. We all depend on the news you bring. If you share any of this, please don't mention my name. The Russian government has tentacles and holds a grudge. I haven't named the individual and just want to thank him and all of those in Russia who do listen to our reporting. We sometimes get messages from listeners asking if we have people listening in Moscow and elsewhere. The answer is a definitive yes. And we even had a message from one listener recently saying that they were listening on their headphones in Red Square, which is quite a remarkable image. So we appreciate that. And we appreciate all of those in Russia who take the time out of their day to hear the truth about what is going on. Thank you very much, Francis Sternley there. Um, Dom Nichols, would you like to go next? Yeah, thanks, David. One very, very quickly. I just note yesterday, the 6th, was uh, two months since the destruction of the Novokokovka Dam, one of the greatest ecological uh, disasters or acts that we've ever seen, certainly this century, I would venture, man-made still not hearing an awful lot from the from the authorities the political movements and the organizations that really should be talking about this and raising absolute hell about what happened there so this is your monthly reminder if anyone from the un office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs wants to come and have a chat you know we're here you can dm us and i'll be back i'm sure with the same message uh, in a month's time but uh, my final 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 thought would be uh, talking about air defence briefly. So President Zelensky has praised air defence, says that the systems provided to Kiev are yielding significant results, repelling a huge number of Russian attacks, especially over the last week. He said actually in, in, the, um, in the last week, the last seven days, Moscow has fired 65 different missiles and 178 drones at Ukraine. Uh, in particular, he praised the US Patriot and the Iris T systems, German Iris T uh, Iris T system, sorry, um, saying they're very powerful. So 
air defence is good. Air defence seems to be working. Some get through, obviously, but and it is largely a numbers game, but the air defence seems to be working. But let's have a look at why he said that. He said that in response to the Russian action, in response to Ukraine's attacks in the Black Sea, so the against the landing craft on what was it Thursday night and then the oil tanker Friday night. Now, Russia's response to these things, it's just hissy fit, angry missile strikes, because that's all they can do. There's largely stalemate at the moment on the battlefield. All Russia can do is utterly uncoordinated. It, it serves no greater purpose than just it's just a vengeful attack. But Russia has shown that they only have, in response, only have air weapons, missiles and other bombs and what have you. Not air power. I hasten to add air power being, well, whatever definition you like, but I take it as the ability to project and sustain military effect from the air. So Russia can't do that for all the reasons we talked about earlier. So all they've got is air weapons. They just fling these things about. And again, that, that's largely, as I say, there's, the, the lines aren't moving very far down south or in the east. And it is intensely frustrating for everyone, in, or for Ukrainians, and for those that want Ukraine to prevail in this war. But as I said last week, echoing the words of General Mark Milley, US Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, <laughs> this is really hard, OK? So we shouldn't get too precious about our concerns. It's the Ukrainians who are bearing the brunt here. But they've largely fought them to a stalemate. 18 months ago, February the 22nd, nobody would have, well, very few people would imagine that we'd be able to say that that we are frustrated at the, the, the stalemate. Ukraine have earned that. They've earned, they've earned that ability. They've earned the, the right to hold Russia at a stalemate in the south. I think momentum is still with Ukraine, depending on the flow of arms, which is slow and precarious. It might not, um, uh, it might always be as it is. But as we've seen from Russia, what, what can they do now? What are they doing? They're attacking grain. They're attacking the civilian areas. They're attacking med facilities. This transfusion centre we saw over the weekend. They are out of ideas. If they've got any ideas at all, it's mine everything and hope you can hang on until a change in political appetite in the West. That's all it is. That's all it can do. That's all the ideas they have. So if ever there was a time to get the weapons into Ukraine now, before the Rasputitsa sets in, the, the, you know, the, mud, the real thick, wet, cloying mud and winter get the weapons in now russia have shown they can't do anything they're, they're out of ideas they are they're hiding behind their lines down south they're trying to push up the north you've seen how good these weapons can be in the hands of ukrainians you've seen what the air defense can do to keep them in the fight and and provide the space for the ground so get the rest of the weapons in there. i don't know why we still haven't really moved on in a major way from the idea that I said what, a year ago, I said you can't be a little bit pregnant. If you're going to support Ukraine, you support Ukraine. You can't say, well, we'll send a small amount of this, a small amount of that. You know, it, when it comes to battlefield weapons, the debate, I think, of escalation and provocation has moved on. But if you're just going to talk battlefield weapons, then what is stopping you? And I, I, it's an, as frustrated as it is to see that Russia is still in there and still in the fight and still killing civilians with, with abandon, and as frustrating as it is to see or to listen to the utter silence from the from many who should know better in the world community about things like the Novokokovka Dam. It is intensely frustrating that there are still discussions and debates about sending weapons to Ukraine, and I don't know why. Thank you, Dom and Francis. James Kilder, do you want the final thoughts for today? I'd just like to flag up two small things, if I may. First was to pick up on what Francis was saying, and I thought his email just now was... From, from the listener is really interesting. What he was saying about the Jeddah talks over the weekend hosted by Saudi Arabia, 
Now, Russia wasn't there, so you may think, well, people may think, well, what was the point of this, these talks? U- Ukraine was there and uh, around 40 other countries and dele- delegations, including China and uh, the US and the UK, etc. I think these are actually really important. And I think they're really important because it gives Ukraine a direct access have direct conversations with some of the countries in Africa, the Middle East and Asia that uh, the Kremlin has been trying to woo so, so heavily. If everyone will remember that, a couple of weeks ago, the Kremlin hosted its Africa, its annual Africa summit in St. Petersburg. Now, this is all part of their PR campaign to get African nations on their side, offer them free grain in some cases and cheap weapons, etc. So I think the Jeddah Peace Summit even though fairly adjacent, is probably the, the word to put it, I think it is important because it's all diplomacy, it's all happening without the Kremlin, and it means Ukraine can access d- these delegates directly. Uh, the second thing I just want to find out really quickly is a is, um, story that our colleague Natasha wrote on uh, Friday about uh, the Kremlin doubling its defence budget, or its military budget, this year really shows the extent to which the Russian economy has become a militarised economy. It's it's been quite remarkable to watch. I've seen uh, shopping centres converted into drone factories, bakers stop baking bread and construct drones, etc. Workers at industrial plants producing military equipment being put on six-day-a-week shifts, Russian propagandists. Uh, try and encourage office workers to volunteer for a shift in weapons factories after they finish their work, etc. It's been absolutely remarkable. And this is something I've, I've said a few times. When readers of The Telegraph and listeners pay podcasts come across data from the Kremlin, which says that the Russian economy is doing just about okay, might be down a percentage point or two, but nothing to worry about. It's totally uh, skewed by this huge military spending, which is boosting GDP, the civilian economy, has really collapsed. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Today's Ukraine The Latest is edited by Rachel Porter. The executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.